Okay, so the um, the Buddha wrote a very spoke a very intriguing statement. At least it caught my attention. He said that people possessing three qualities live full of happiness and joy in this very life and lay a foundation for the destruction of the taints, which is code for uh, getting enlightened. So that's, a, I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? Full of happiness and joy in this very life and lay a foundation for awakening. But then these three things um, turn out to be pretty interesting. Um, then you read the three things, which are guarding the sense doors, being moderate in eating, and being devoted to wakefulness. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd, I want to focus on the first one, the guarding of the sense doors, but I'll, I'll mention the other two also. I mean, you might read those and think, well, why is that, why is that related to happiness and joy in this very life and laying a foundation for awakening? So, um, you know, what does he mean by be moderate in eating? I mean, this sounds like you know, diet advice from 2,600 years ago. Uh, this, is, this was before we got as sophisticated as we are today about these things. But it's, it's actually pretty much just that. You know, it says that um, eating is an area where we have often an unskillful relationship to our actions or we're doing actions that are not actually leading toward our own happiness. And in the case of this instruction... It's actually that um, to reflect on why we're eating at a given time, and he says there are various reasons to eat that are not very useful, such as for beauty, for gaining weight, um, for uh, you know satisfaction of kind of um, simple in the moment desires, those kinds of things. Um, but instead, that the motivation to eat, and this is more for monastics maybe, but we might take it to heart, is to um, keep the body healthy in order that we can practice. So it's we eat for health in order to you know, we take in enough calories, but not too many, of the right kind, with all the right types um, of nutrients, so that we can actually have a body that works for practice. I think it's a very good advice. You know, it's like, why else are we, you know, he says, to maintain the body for that. And just the fact that we would have this out of our own personal needs kind of motivation is very good. So if eating is all about just me, you know, satisfying me, making me look good, um, you know, whatever, then it's, uh, it's pretty limited. And he's saying this is actually a whole realm where we could open the mind and open the heart. Oh, I'm doing this in order that I can remain a good practitioner or have enough strength that I can be available to others as part of my compassion practice. So we might check into that. And then another thing he says about it more specifically is that we eat um, just the right amount such that we... Um, eliminate the pain of hunger. He does acknowledge that hunger is a painful condition and that we need to do something about it, Um, but not to create new pain, meaning the pain of being overly full and regretting it and falling asleep and feeling heavy. um, We know, know, we know when we've done that, right? Or having the third piece of cake that we didn't really need. So 
Um, my teacher actually says that on retreat he does this practice where he pauses after every bite of food and he tries to find the exact bite where that one he feels satisfied but if he were to have one more he would feel slightly heavy and so this is a good um, maybe a good threshold to explore in ourselves where that is sometimes it's said about 80% full is about right for that and then the um, the third one in this list of how to be full and happiness, full of happiness and joy in this very life, and lay a foundation for awakening, is to be devoted to wakefulness. And in the context that it's given, it does literally mean uh, not sleeping too much. And you know, it's about not being uh, devoted to sleeping, basically. So. Um, and we know what that means, to be devoted to sleeping. <laughs> now, in our culture, we carry a fair amount of sleep debt, so um, I don't think the, the literal instruction to sleep for four hours a night, which is what he recommends for monks on retreat, I don't think that's appropriate for lay people in this world. So, um, But to be aware of using sleep in the same way, we sleep the right amount. Um, my teacher knew a, a monk, in a Zen monk in New York, who never slept, like somehow practice had just changed his, I haven't done this, but somehow practice had changed his mind such that he didn't really need to sleep. And he said that, you know, sometimes he would sleep because just like everybody else does it, uh, but that it makes him tired. (laughs) Sleeping makes him tired, so he just doesn't do it. (laughs) Not all of us have been um, transformed in that way through practice. But we might, you know, we might pay attention to whether we're using sleep in a way that we're actually devoted to wakefulness. We prefer to be awake and present, but we do need to sleep in order to, once again, restore the body. I think it could also be interpreted a little more broadly, devoted to wakefulness, to mean devoted to mindfulness. You know, just as many minutes and moments during the day, uh, we can be mindful. And so, you know, this entails not only the sort of vague thing that most of us carry around, like, oh, I'm intending to be mindful as much as possible, but we can be a little more specific than that because we know there, we know we're not mindful 24 or 7, at least most of us aren't. And so um, one practice to do is to notice when you come back from not being mindful, which we all do many times a day, just start to notice if there are patterns to that. Like, are there times when, are there activities you do where you're consistently not able to be mindful? Or are there places you go where you're consistently not able to be mindful? Like Andrea Fellow, um, who's a, another teacher, found to her surprise, I mean, she'd already been practicing for a while, but she actually did this instruction to be more clear about when she wasn't mindful. She discovered that she was never mindful in the bathroom. You know, it's like that just wasn't a time when she could maintain her mindfulness. So this is a clear indication that we can do all of our life activities without being mindful. It's no problem. She'd been doing that her whole life. But she would consistently wake up while she was washing her hands. Uh, And she finally realized, oh, I'm just, I'm not present for this activity of my life. Who knows, some mental block. And so then she made some extra effort to be able to be present while she was using the bathroom. 
the instructions on being wakeful actually include that. So I think the Buddha might have noticed, like he gives a list of times when you should be aware, and he says, you know, when eating, when walking, when resting, when talking, when being silent, when urinating, when defecating, you know, it goes on. And these are actually listed in the suttas. So I have the feeling he picked out areas where people might not always be mindful. So you're in good company, perhaps. Okay, and then I want to go back now to the first item on that list, which is, it's called (coughs) guarding the sense doors. And this is, again, kind of, you know, Buddhist language. What does it mean to guard the sense doors? So first of all, the sense doors refers to literally our, our senses, to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And the sixth one is the mind. So in the in the case of these teachings, the sixth sense is not like extrasensory perception, but it's um, it's the the mind and the impact that thoughts and feelings and stories have on our well-being, which they do, of course. And so, guarding the sense doors, um, there is actually an instruction about this. It says, well, he just does it for the eye first. When seeing a form with the eye, one does not grasp its signs and features. For if one leaves the eye faculty unrestrained or unguarded, unwholesome states of covetousness and displeasure might invade one. So that's, again, technical language, but it's there's so much in there um, for our regular moment-to-moment practice. So when seeing a form with the eye, form just means anything that we see. So visual objects it could have just as easily been when hearing a sound with the ear. So stuff we hear. So when seeing, we don't grasp the signs and features of it. And that doesn't mean we don't recognize what it is. Of course we do. But we know the difference between grasping the signs and features and, you know, seeing it and knowing what it is. So, for example, if you go into the grocery store and you go by the bakery counter (laughs) and you see you know, the cho- the freshly baked chocolate chip cookies that just got slid into the tray, the display case, you may grasp the signs and features of those. I mean, they are just, you know, white things with little brown spots in them, right? But they have a whole meaning in our mind of, oh, freshly baked cookies, you know, those are so good. They evoke this whole experience of, from memory that we have. Or, you know, who knows, maybe... It's like, oh, that reminds me of the fact that my partner and I, on our first date, had, you know, chocolate chip cookies, something like that. And so there's, there's this whole thing that where we've grasped onto this object and have it made it have a whole meaning for us. And then if we do that, it says that states of covetousness and displeasure might invade the mind. So I talked about the covetousness, but how about when we you know, we hear a sound during meditation, and we don't just hear sound, we hear, oh man, those people are walking on our ceiling again. How come Alice didn't get the insulation installed yet? We've been on their case for a while about that. I think, uh, you know, I think we really ought to move to a different location, even though we just got to this one. So, you know, it's like this, the whole mind has gone off um, on something. Okay, that was a humorous example. (laughs) But, um, you know, so the sense of guarding the sense doors just means watching out for that tendency to run off based on a very simple input, you know, just seeing something or hearing something. 
we know what that's like when the mind goes off. We know because we can see a comparison. You know, actually most of the things we look at, we don't do that with, right? It's just a few, maybe more than a few, but, you know, we're not assaulted by stuff like that 24-7. But, so then it stands out when it is. A lot of things in this room that you saw didn't do that, like, I don't know, the floor. I don't know, I just saw the floor and it looks fine. I suppose now that I'm looking at it, I could go off on one of those things. But, you know, basically that input came in, but somehow it wasn't grasped. And so it's useful to notice, you know, when does the mind do this and when doesn't it? And then pay some attention to whether there are patterns to that. So there are a number of just kind of observations around this. First of all, um, there's a nice image that I want to share, actually, about having unguarded sense faculties. Or actually, the image is about when they're guarded. It's um, said that it's like having a chariot that's harnessed to thoroughbred horses standing at a crossroads. And if the horses are really well-tamed and well-trained, and you have a skilled charioteer on the chariot, then if the charioteer wanted, she could just drive off in any direction and uh, stop and return by any route whenever she wanted. That's the actually the phrase. A skilled charioteer could easily drive off in any direction and return by any route whenever he wants or she wants. So, too, a person trains in controlling the sense doors, in taming them, in pacifying them. So I like this image because it not only implies kind of the quote-unquote control, we have to be careful about that, but when one's sense doors are guarded, you know, there's a sense that we can use our mind and our experience the way we'd like to, in some beneficial way. And the opposite image, I find, is also kind of conveyed by this. Because, you know, a chariot is a powerful thing. What if those horses are not tamed, and you're sitting on this chariot, <laughs> and they run off <laughs> in some direction? It's like, whoa! I mean, I, I personally don't know how to drive a chariot very well. <laughs> so that would be like a big experience for me, um, to be on a chariot with wild horses running. And this is the image implied if the sense doors are unguarded. And we, and we know that experience, right? It's like the wild horses have taken off, and we're sitting and we're saying, no, I'm on the breath, but we're back on that argument we had this morning again and again and again. The chariot is driving off, and we're not, um, we're not in control of it. So there's, um, these images can be powerful. And there's a sense, then, that the, that the sense doors, I should say, there's a feeling that the sense doors are worth guarding, actually, they're worth guarding. You're worth it. <laughs> Your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind are worth um, guarding because they're valuable. They could be used for good, for benefit, for continuing the practice, for laying a foundation, for awakening, for doing compassionate action. And we're not able to do that if our chariot is running off. So um, there's a sense of self-respect in learning to have some ability to see when those things are going to go off. I was given this book recently. Um, it's called On Tyranny, and it's actually uh, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And it's actually about um, you know, our kind of our current political situation and the degree to which it resembles other times in history when uh, tyrants have taken over by legitimate election and then slowly 
eroding rights. And so it's a it's a very much a political manifesto in a sense. Um, and so I apologized for uh, co-opting it a little bit with a, um, a Dharma theme, but I I thought it was interesting to read it with the lens of to what degree uh, are we under the tyranny of our minds, the tyranny of our emotional reactions based on habits from the past, based on memories that we haven't fully processed. Uh, to what degree do those have um, sort of get in power in your mind uh, by some kind of legitimate vote, like you decide it was okay to have that memory, and um, suddenly you're gone. You're not uh, in control of your own faculties anymore, and your vote counts for less and less, and you're unhappy. So um, I think there's something to be said about uh, this guarding of the sense doors as a very mature approach to making sure that we don't get taken over. Uh, if you think something is valuable, like, say, your heart, which I think is very valuable. All of our hearts are very valuable and should not be tyrannized by uh, unrestrained reactions of anger, of fear, of doubt. What's your tyrant? And have you given a little bit too much permission in some sense? So this is good work that we're doing. We're helping each other to do it. This is from Rodney Smith, his book, Stepping Out of Self-Deception. The energy needed to investigate our pain, end our personal narrative, and free the contracted mind is considerable. But there is no more joyous or interesting work. The heart contains all the energy necessary to complete this task, but only when our attention is not fractured. So it's interesting, right, that he talks about pain, our, our pain, our personal narrative, and then he says, there's no more joyous or interesting work. It starts to sound like people possessing three qualities live full of happiness and joy in this very life. This is joyful work. The work of seeing the way our heart has been tyrannized, seeing the way our story takes us over, and to know that we're building the energy through mindfulness to not run off with that. It's joyous work, and it lays the foundation for uh, full awakening. So thank you all for your practice. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff.